Let me just begin this morning by asking you a simple question. Are church leaders important? I'm not being flippant when I ask that question. I guess what I mean is more along the lines of how important are church leaders? What if I said this? A local church that is devoid or does not have biblically qualified leaders is a generation away from apostasy or closing its doors. Does that seem a little extreme? Did someone need to cringe a little bit when I said that? Is that? That's not the culture of the church age that we are in right now. I mean, every local church, the Bible is the ultimate guide. Pastors are great. They're important for the life, the vibrancy of a church. We'd all admit that. Church needs to, pastors help the church to run well. Like we'd all say that. But what I said, that sounded a little bit like a hyperbole. Let me tell you two stories that may change your mind. One is the story of the Bible. Another is an anecdote from church history in our own province. First, the Bible. Let's begin with Moses. He's a great leader, of course. Moses, he hesitates out of the gate, but he rises as an excellent leader in Israel. From Egypt to the banks of the Jordan, he carries a grumbling nation for 40 years. He rebukes And he intercedes repeatedly on behalf of the people and saves them from being wiped out by God's judgment against their sin. He rules wisely on civil matters. He teaches the law. He seeks the Lord's will in prayer. He models godly character as well as any sinner ever has. And all the while, Moses is actively raising up a successor. We see him all throughout the end of Exodus into Numbers see him in Deuteronomy, it's Joshua. He gives him opportunities to lead battles, he assigns responsibility, he passes on wisdom. Joshua seems to be very close to Moses all throughout the Torah. When Moses dies, Joshua is ready. God's people hardly miss a beat on the banks of the Jordan. They enter and they conquer the promised land, and by the end of the book of Joshua, things are looking pretty good. The people are in the promised land. There's some work still to do, but it's mostly mopping up. The hard stuff is done. But then Joshua dies. And there is no obvious successor. People seek the Lord, so that's good. They do the right thing. The Lord says, Judah is commanded to take the lead. But no one really grabs the reins. There's Some brief bright spots in Caleb and Othniel in Judges chapter 1 from Judah. But the tribe of Judah really fades into the background of the book of Judges after chapter 1. And what we get instead is Israel plunging into a destructive, downward spiral of sin that is relieved only by brief periods of deliverance under increasingly problematic military leaders. By the end of Judges, Israel is at an all-time low. The repeated refrain is, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No godly leaders, God's law forgotten, no godly living. Saul arrives on the scene, somewhat dubiously, some dubious motives on behalf of the people. But at last, it seems God's people might be united again. Behind this man is the king. He starts out all right, but we soon find out he is weak in faith. He is capable, and he does ignore the prophets, God's word through the prophets, and pretty soon Israel finds itself in trouble again. 
Thankfully, the Lord is quietly raising up another man, a man after his own heart, as he is described, one who fulfills the qualifications the Lord has already given for a king in Deuteronomy 18. And once this David finally ascends to the throne, Israel flourishes. Earlier, Sam read for us David's last words. They are instructive. He says, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. In other words, under godly leadership, God's people flourish. Sadly, the 40 kings that follow David in Israel and in David, only nine of them fear the Lord. There is one sweet 120-year period in the southern kingdom where there's a succession of four good kings, and things go very well in Judah when that is taking place. They're in peace. The northern kingdom is under constant attack, under poor leadership. Within 400 years of David, though, after Manasseh rises as a very evil king in Judah, all of the Israelites are no longer in the promised land. They are living in exile. After the exile, we get a couple periods of flourishing again, but it's, again, under the godly leadership of leaders rising up and rallying God's people back to faithfulness. Ezra, Nehemiah, they're brief periods, but again, connected with leaders. We come to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we meet a new godly leader, one who looks an awful lot like Moses. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the true and the greater Moses and the inaugurator of a much better covenant. He, of course, needs no successor. His rule and his kingdom will have no end. Yet he knows, after his bodily ascension, human leadership will be needed in the period before his return. And so, Jesus has not neglected this. He has created an inner circle of men to be the foundation of God's new people. He spends more time with these men for three years than anyone else, preparing them to lead his church. All through the book of Acts, we see these men, the apostles, with a similar concern for leadership. In Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas retrace their missionary journey steps, appointing elders in each church. Paul writes the letter I just read to Titus, instructing him to appoint elders over the churches in every town in Crete. The unnamed author of Hebrews commands Christians to submit to their elders. All of this to say is I think we downplay the importance of godly leadership in our churches today. The testimony of the entire Bible pushes hard against being lukewarm toward those who occupy leadership roles in God's church. And church history backs this up again and again, and we need look no further than our own province. As recently as 80 years ago, a significant majority of the Christians living in Ontario were members of the United Church of Canada. Today, it grieves me to say that to hear the true gospel preached in a United Church in this province would be akin to a miracle. I'm sure it happens, but it's rare. One church, I use that term loosely, recently ordained an atheist minister. The denomination now publicly confesses that, and this is a direct quote, members are not required to adhere to any particular creed or formulation of doctrine. So what happened? No doubt a number of things, but one of the earliest 
and I would argue the most crucial factors, was a general ignorance or pragmatism when it came to installing leaders, when it came to installing pastors. This was likely subtle at first. A local man goes off to seminary. There's maybe some unsavory theology being taught there. He gains some traction. He comes back home, comes to his hometown church. He has some sketchy views perhaps now in the background on the resurrection or on the miracles of Jesus or the inerrancy of scripture. It's okay. We know Johnny. He loves Jesus. He can be our pastor. Pretty soon the doctrines start to fall like dominoes. By the time his replacement comes in, most of the congregation would never agree to hire a fanatic who actually believes in the virgin birth. In God's sovereign mercy to my family, my great-grandfather left the church at this moment. It came to him at significant social cost. Churches, of course, were the town squares of the 1950s in small farming communities. But the denial of such a doctrine as the virgin birth of Christ was enough for him to make the long drive into the city to go to a Baptist church, a church where I would later hear the gospel in Sunday school and be saved. Tens of thousands of other families weren't so fortunate. They were slowly deceived, they were led astray, and their children grew up knowing nothing of the truth. Friends, a church without godly leaders is in a precarious spiritual position. Godly church leadership is essential for the preservation of sound doctrine and to model the godly living that flows from it. This is Paul's message to Titus in chapter 1. And it's really close to the heart of his theme for this whole book. You can see it there in your bulletins. There are really two main sections uh, to Titus chapter 1. There's Paul's lengthy introduction in verses 1 to 4. That's really second only to Romans in terms of theological depth from Paul. And then verses 5 to 16, they speak of this need for godly elders to be installed in churches in Crete in order to silence a group of false teachers. We're going to spend most of our time in those latter verses, but I'm going to begin just briefly with this introduction and give you three brief takeaways from it. First, just a word on Titus and his relationship to the Apostle Paul. We know Titus was an early convert of Paul's, likely Paul's direct evangelism. He was his spiritual son, as we see in verse 4. He was also a Gentile, as that's given to us in Galatians 2. He became very involved in the church of Corinth for a time. Uh, this letter likely comes to Titus about 10 years after the events that he's all caught up in in 2 Corinthians. It's around AD 64, likely. Uh, Paul is writing these instructions perhaps as much for Titus, we find out, as for those who will succeed Titus uh, in Crete, uh, Artemis or Tychicus, who are coming there to relieve him. So was Titus an apostle? No, not quite. Along with Timothy and a few others, he's often referred to as an apostolic delegate. While these men were not apostles, they carried with them as envoys apostolic authority, an authority that died with the apostles. It's a role unique to the early church, but there is a strong parallel here with Titus to all Christians. What Titus learned and received in person from the apostle Paul we now learn and receive from the Bible. The apostolic message is fully set down in these inerrant and authoritative scriptures. 
And so, Christian, we are all very much in the same position of Titus. He has no advantage here, really. We have the same responsibility to not waver from apostolic teaching and to help others to hold fast to the truth that leads to godliness. And it's in that last phrase, that truth that leads to godliness, where we land at the very heart of this letter from Paul to Titus. This is what it's about. This is the second thing I want you to note just from the introduction, because it's right there in verse 1. Right at the end of verse 1 is the main message of the entire book, really. We see Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. I've restated that slightly in your bulletins as the big picture of the whole book of Titus. The whole book, not just chapter 1. Genuine good works emerge only from a deepening grasp of sound gospel doctrine. If godly lives are not present, neither is the gospel. But where did I get the gospel out of verse 1? Did I just sort of extrapolate that out there? Make a good guess? I'll read verse 1 again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And from the context of verses 1 to 4, we know five things about this truth. This truth is something possessed only by God's elect. It's the result of this truth is godly living. It was promised by God before the beginning of time. It offers a hope of eternal life. And it is something that now, that is in the church age, being brought to light by preaching. I think we can say there's only one thing that fulfills all of those terms. All those parameters. The truth that leads to godliness is the gospel. It is the good news of what God has accomplished in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners and what in consequence he will accomplish in the new heavens and new earth. It's the good news held out by a perfect creator God to every fallen human who bears his image. This is the truth that clung to by faith leads to godliness. Jesus died for sinners and was raised. It's the truth that saves. Believe that today. Turn from your sin and the certain hope of eternal life in verse 1 will also be yours. A third takeaway here from Paul's opening. He has an emphasis in this opening on the truth of the gospel that is reliable because it rests on a trustworthy God. Crete, that's the island where Titus is, it was an island proverbial in the ancient world for its deceit. Paul says as much in chapter 1, verse 12, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, and then he actually quotes here a Cretan philosopher, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, this saying is true. This general stereotype is true. This is what's going on in Crete. Greek mythology, particularly Cretan Greek mythology, it's ripe with fickle and deceitful deities. The people follow suit. It's not much of a surprise. And so what Paul does is put the gospel and the godliness that it's supposed to produce firmly in the context of the absolute trustworthiness of God. He states as much plainly in verse 3, God does not lie. And then he defends that statement with really the greatest example of God's utter trustworthiness, his covenant of redemption. 
We sang about this in our song a little bit earlier. Long before the creation began, he foreknew those he'd ransom in Christ. Long before time's cold hourglass ran, he ordained the supreme sacrifice. Paul reminds Titus that God promised eternal life by the means of the gospel from the beginning of time. That is a mind-boggling sentence. But that idea is all over scripture. Time doesn't allow me today, but I invite you to consider Ephesians 1, John 6, Acts 2, 2 Timothy 1, 9. Read those texts. The essence of it is this. In eternity past, God the Father, in conjunction with the Son and of the Holy Spirit, planned salvation. Commissioned the Son to redeem a people on the cross and the Spirit to apply this atoning work to that chosen people. And that was all before Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1. In 1 Peter 1.20, a very close parallel here, Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. That's more or less what Paul says here too. Paul wants the Cretans through Titus to understand the God of the gospel is not like the erratic deities that they know, but rather numbers 23, 19, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And so we see that the message of Titus, that genuine good works emerge only from the deepening grasp of sound gospel doctrine is reinforced by this emphasis of Paul's on the trustworthiness of God. And so we come now to the second section, this larger section of our text today, starting in verse 5. We saw already its main message earlier, that godly church leadership is essential for the preservation of sound doctrine and to model the godly living that flows from it. Recall that the truth that leads to godliness is something that is brought to light through preaching, Paul says in verse 3. Paul's argument really in the rest of chapter 1 is essentially that those charged with preaching the gospel should not contradict it with their actions. Instead, their lives should give obvious evidence to its transforming power. It's really a logical and a simple argument, but all too often ignored. Instead of Titus 1, 5 to 9, and of 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, churches often use sets of qualifications that we think are better, that focus on skill or charisma, entrepreneurship, unique vision, while glossing over character and doctrine. And we wonder why so many churches veer away quickly from the truth. Look at verse 5. Here Paul says the church planting work in Crete is unfinished. Why? There aren't any elders. Now that doesn't mean churches can't exist without elders. I'm not saying that. A church is fundamentally the sum of its members. But it is to say that churches without qualified elders are disordered churches. Paul commands Titus to put these churches in Crete into order. They are churches walking with a limp and they are in a precarious position for long-term faithfulness. And so Paul commissions Titus to appoint elders in every town. I'll just invite you to notice two things about that little phrase. First, it is elders, plural, in every town, 
singular. A plurality of qualified men for every local church seems to be the pattern. And this would fit uh, with other texts as well. Acts 14, 23, we've already seen that a little bit earlier. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in each church. Friends, this single pastor model, which is sadly quite common in church history and even recent church history, uh, it's simply not the New Testament picture of church leadership. A plurality of elders, overseers, pastors, shepherds, bishops, all those words, they seem to refer to the same office. The Bible uses them all. That is the model, having multiple men who meet those qualifications. But what about that word appoint in verse 5? Did any of you cringe a little bit at that word in a Baptist church? It certainly raises the question of how elders should be installed in our churches, doesn't it? It seems like Titus kind of has a carte blanche here to choose leaders. He's kind of like a bishop he's in some denominations, right? He can just come in, a super elder. That's what it looks like. I'll say four things here in rebuttal to that, because I don't believe that's true. First, the Greek word translated the point here, uh, it's also used in Acts 6. Uh, that's where the apostles choose the protodeacons. Uh, in that instance, it's used to refer to the final step in the process. A process that began with the congregation selecting seven men. So Paul very well could be using a final step in the process, kind of like he does often with baptism, referring to conversion as referring to the whole. Second, we have to keep in mind that Titus is an apostolic delegate. This is a role unique to the time of the apostles. Titus may have unilaterally appointed elders. He may have done that. But if he did, he did so with authority derived directly from an apostle, which no one possesses today. Quite a few characteristics would have required Titus to have some kind of involvement, too, from the congregation. For example, a blameless reputation is not something Titus could very well assess in a vacuum. Other scriptures put the onus on the congregation to hold elders accountable, most notably Galatians 1, 6-9. Uh, that text seems to imply the Galatians should be able to remove their teachers, who are likely elders, from their midst. And if they can remove them, should they not also first be involved in approving of them? This is why at New City, while elders begin the nomination process, the congregation takes part in it and makes the final call on who its elders will be. There are two questions that really dominate the rest of our text today. It's the rest of the section. Verse 6, right to the end of 16. It's really one thought. Two questions. Who are elders? What do they do? Don Carson, of course, famously comments here, the biblical qualifications for elders are remarkable for being unremarkable. The biblical motto is character, character, character. Better a godly man who preaches mediocre sermons, like you may be getting today, than a charismatic preacher with an obvious moral flaw. Let me also just address the women here today for a moment. Please don't tune out as we head into this part of our sermon. Tim Challies puts it well. While elders are meant to exemplify these traits in verses 5 to 9, all Christians are to exhibit them. Which means as we're making our way through these verses here this morning, we need to be thinking on two levels. On one level, we are prayerfully looking for God to raise up men at New City to meet these qualifications. 
But on another level, these virtues and characteristics are also demanded of you. There is nothing in this list that is not elsewhere commanded of all Christians in the New Testament. Yes, even teaching. We're going to see that next week, in fact, in Titus chapter 2, where women are very much called to handle and teach the word in the church. But brothers, make no mistake, speaking to you directly now, brothers in this church, this text is a call to mature Christian manhood. That's not to say I think every man should be an elder. Quite the opposite. James warns not many of you should become teachers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. But we do well to remember Paul starting his instructions to Timothy on elders. He says, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. There's, of course, always that danger of selfish ambition. I think we've probably all encountered that at some point. But pursuing pastoring is not a bad thing. It's not something that is prideful. I think the bigger problem today than selfish ambition and pursuing pastoring for power and prestige, at least in the West anyway, is that eldership isn't even on the radar for most men. It's not even crossing their mind. They haven't given it a second thought. And that was me about seven years ago. But a healthy level of aspiration to be a shepherd of God's church is a good thing. If you don't aspire, I dare say you should consider praying for aspiration. The Lord may not give it to you, but pray about it. Elders are a gift to the church. It is a privilege to serve under Christ and for the good of his people. That said, desire or not, brothers, we all must aspire to the highest standards of holiness and godliness while putting aside patterns of sin and unrighteousness. And a great place to begin doing that is by knowing and imitating the character qualifications of pastors. Because pastors are qualified to this office primarily on the basis of character, not gifting. To put it another way, our sermon today is a call to mature Christian manhood because this text is about pastors. This qualification list is a one-stop shop. It is man's best friend. But don't push that too far. Pastors, of course, in some parts of the world walk on water. Oh, pastor, we are so blessed to have you sit at our table during potluck. What an honor. Wow. Some of you grew up in that kind of church culture. That's a distortion. A pastor isn't any better than anybody else. He is a sinner saved by grace and filled with the Spirit just like every other Christian. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. A Christian pastor is simply to exemplify in his own life the virtues and graces that are demanded of all the people of God. I'm going to divide these qualifications into two broad categories this morning, and I'll just note here I'm indebted to the work of Tim Challies and of Paul Martin at Grace Fellowship Church Toronto. Some of the structure, some of the Greek insights in particular, I'm not a Greek scholar. Uh, it was, I gave this talk, actually, part of this that you're going to hear here in a second at the Weekender at GFC earlier this year. Here's two sets, of, two broad sets to break up verses 5 through 9 in Titus, talking about elder qualification. First, a man qualified to serve as an elder has a godly home life. The Bible frequently talks about the church like a family, and actually families like little churches. 
We, of course, can take that too far. Please don't take the Lord's Supper just in your family. Uh, But there are a lot of parallels. As John mentioned last week at our members' meeting, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If a man cannot lead his own family well, he should not be trusted to lead a church. In my very limited experience evaluating men to this office in this church as an elder, I can say this is the most common area where a man's potential to be an elder gains traction or where it falls flat. It's an all-encompassing qualification. Basically, all the qualifications that follow in verse 8 in particular, if you're, if you're, doing, if you're leading your family well, leading your household well, then you are likely fulfilling all those other qualifications. First, Paul says an elder must be a husband of one wife. He actually writes to Timothy the exact same phrase, talking about elders. Just a couple of clarifications on that. Does this mean an elder must be married? No. It is the husband of one wife, not a husband, period. Polygamy is out. Singleness is not. Remarriage after the death of a spouse, or we would argue divorce on biblical grounds, is not. This qualification is perhaps better phrased as a character quality. Elders should be one women kind of men. That means they are above accusation. They are blameless, as the text says, in their relationships with all women. They are porn free with a significant track record of faithfulness in that kind of area. If married, they are devoted to their wives sexually, emotionally, and for her spiritual good. If single, they aren't flirty, and they are generally wise about how they engage with members of the opposite sex. An elder should also be able to do this in his marriage. Gently contradict his wife when she is wrong, or when she is in sin especially. The principle being, if he cannot do this in his home and do it well, he will not be able to do it well in the church. Along those lines, if a man has children, and it is an if there, if a man has children, an elder must be responsible and a devoted father. Ah, that doesn't look like what it says in the text, Pastor Alex. It says his children must believe. Does that mean an elder's kids must be Christians? Some say it is. I and many other commentators think the NIV makes a poor translation choice here. Greek word study alone actually doesn't fully answer this question. Paul uses this word a couple other times in the pastoral epistles, and it means different things in in different contexts. It can mean believing like a Christian, or it can mean generally trustworthy and faithful. But if Titus 1.6 is understood as the NIV has chosen to put it here, believe, the question arises from what age must his children believe? It it seems really out of step with the whole nature of the new covenant, I would argue. As we've seen, Paul also wrote to Timothy about elders. And in that text, we get a little bit more clarity on what Paul is meaning here by using this word in Titus. 1 Timothy 3.2, an elder must manage his own household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? New City, the issue here is how a man parents his children. We must carefully examine how a man's children treat him. If they are rebellious and wild, that's really what it's being held out to. Believe, rebellious, and wild. It's kind of an opposed, opposite 
if you look at the Titus text, uh, that says something about the potential elder's character. The issue is not the salvation of his children, but their respect and their obedience to their father. Everyone's going to have a bad day. It's not a perfect record, but it's a general good relationship going on. We need to look for a man who does not shrug off blatant disobedience, but disciplines in love with his children. Who makes sacrifices to ensure his children know him and he knows them. Who takes responsibility to model and teach the gospel in the home. The buck stops with him. Brothers, is the Bible ever opened in your home? Besides maybe just your own personal devotions? Is it ever in the context of your full family? Have your children ever heard you sing a hymn outside of maybe generally in the congregation here? They should. How about this? Can your child sitting next to you today in our service hear you? And I mean hear you singing joyfully to your brothers and sisters about the gospel or are you too stoic, too manly to sing? Brothers, they are watching you, especially our sons. Sing to God with gratitude in your heart. The bottom line for this first category of characteristics is churches need leaders who will not rule it like tyrants nor roll over like cowards. The training ground and the proving ground most often for this kind of loving fortitude is the home. Secondly, A man qualified to serve as an elder loves what is good and he does what is good. That is, he is devoted to the gospel and its entailments and he participates in them with joy. Let's skip over the list of negative qualifications, the end of verse 7. We'll go to verse 8. An elder is hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Three of those six qualifications, they could really be summarized by just one of them. Loving what is good. An elder is repulsed by evil, not entertained by it. But this loving what is good is really not about the negative, what he rejects, more about what he embraces. He is holy and he is hospitable. That's the words we have in Titus. By that first word, he loves his own soul. And by the second, he loves God's people. Both of those are good. This is not the typical word used for holy in the Bible. Uh, This is a word that means something closer to holiness in religious practice, pious, devout. That's what this word means as translated holy there. An elder is to be a pious and a devout man in the best sense of those words. Uh, One of the titles used for a leader of God's people throughout the Bible is man of God. Moses, David, the prophets, Timothy, pastors in general, they are given that title. And fundamentally, that is what it means to be a pastor. A man who knows God personally, who walks with God deeply, and is thereby able to represent God accurately to his people. This is a gospel issue. And we see this demonstrated in another way, outwardly towards his people in hospitality. Again, hospitality is not a cultural issue. It's not, you know, it just depends on your culture whether you do it or not. It's a gospel issue. Paul writes that authentic love seeks to show hospitality in Romans 12, 13. Every Christian's home is to be an open home, and so the elder's home should be a model of this. Brothers, can people drop in on you at home? 
kind of last minute or a bit of a surprise casually, and that doesn't feel like a big deal to you, you're able to sort of roll with that? Does your children's schedule choke out the vast majority of your opportunities for hospitality? Work to change that. An elder has a disposition to welcome people into his home because he loves what is good. Secondly, an elder not only loves what is good, he actually does what is good. He is upright, he is self-controlled, he is disciplined. Together, these characteristics mark a note of fairness, of sober-mindedness, balanced, temperate. Brothers, elders do not play favorites. They do not act arbitrarily, nor should you. They are not given to wild mood swings or controlled by their passions. An elder is a man who has disciplined himself when it comes to his entertainment choices, to his spending habits, to his devotional life. And related to these three qualities is 1 Timothy 3, 7, which we don't have a a one-to-one for in Titus. It says this, An elder must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. We need to ask, what is this man's reputation in his workplace, on social media, with his neighbors? Would they be surprised to hear? Would his Twitter followers be surprised to hear that he was leading a church? All these characteristics feed into a man's ability to make wise and just decisions. So if those two broad categories mark out an elder positively, the list at the end of verse 7, back up a little bit, 7b, it does the opposite. The list there of five things elders must not be at the end of verse 7 is more or less reflected than in Paul's description of the false teachers in verses 10 through 16. Elders are not like the Cretan false teachers who are unfit for doing anything good in verse 16. We see that elders are not arrogant, quick-tempered, addicts, bullies, or greedy. Making some translation choices there. These are traits of anti-elders. Men who would likely abuse the authority of the office if they are installed there. Let's look at each of them very briefly. First, uh, verse 7b, an elder is not overbearing. That's what you have in the NIV. Like maybe more clear is the ESV has arrogant here. That's a helpful translation. But this is a hard one to assess. Here are three diagnostic questions we can ask of ourselves and of a man we're maybe assessing to this office. Are we or is he genuinely more concerned about Christ's reputation than his own? Does he act threatened or overly defensive when questioned about plans or programs? How does he speak about other churches? Is it always critical and dismissive? There's a time for that, of course, but is it always? Is nothing good being done outside of his own church? This Titus mention of arrogance is also related to the 1 Timothy 3 qualification. An elder must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall. Sometimes recent converts, they grow rapidly. We've all seen this, right? And they have this zeal for ministry. But this text teaches us it is wise to let some years pass before installing them as pastors. Let the man experience a trial or two and see how he responds as a Christian. This protects both the man and God's church. Secondly, an elder must not be quick-tempered. Friends, angry leaders make angry churches. 
I think we've all seen that in the past three years. Patience is a necessary fruit of the Spirit. Every pastor must possess in, in abundance, in some measure. Those who have known me for more than 10 years, I know this is an area of weakness for me. Talk to my parents, my brother, even my wife, about my temper, if you want a sobering picture of the sinfulness of your pastor. But by God's grace, the Spirit has slowly been putting this sin to death in my life. And this church, five years ago, considered it was no longer something that characterized me. But I would appreciate your constant prayers in this area. Thirdly, elders are not given to drunkenness. That is, they aren't addicts of any substance that inhibits their faculties. A man cannot adequately respond to the bedside of a dying congregant when he is not of a sober mind. It's a good way to put it into practice. Fourthly, an elder must not be violent. Friends, Christ's sheep need a shepherd. They do not need a cowboy. There is no place in the leadership of Christ's bride for a man who runs roughshod over people because he thinks he's a star, who hits people, certainly, whether with his fist or with his tongue. I think we see the tongue one a lot more often. Lastly, an elder does not pursue dishonest gain. He is not greedy. He does not love his paycheck more than his people. He models, 1 Timothy 6, 5, not believing godliness to be a means of gain, but rather godliness with contentment is great gain. A man like this will not give off an air of anxiousness about money. He has a proven track record when it comes to managing his own finances wisely. And he is a faithful model of financial giving to the church. The teachers of the circumcision group, on the other hand, which Paul talks at length about in verses 10 through 16, they seem to possess a number of those qualifications we just talked about elders should not possess. Uh, in verse 10, we see they are full of meaningless talk. They're not self-controlled. They are, verse 11, disrupting whole households instead of managing their own well. They are pursuing dishonest gain, not forsaking it. In general, verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, they are disobedient, and they are unfit for doing anything good. And when we read a verse like that, I think our tendency is to think that's rather easy to discern. Okay, look, this guy's not an elder. He's an anti-elder. This guy is an elder. That is not the case. It is often much more subtle. And that is why it is so dangerous to install a pastor hastily. It is best for a man to be known by a congregation for a significant period of time before he becomes an elder. The church needs to see a track record of faithfulness, not a snapshot of piety. This is not always possible, of course, but it should be the goal. What is clear is that God has given us a special a unique, a clear set of qualifications for elders here in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy 3, and they must constrain us. It's not optional. It's not loose ends. Constrain. We must resist the temptation to look at the world and to take the world's wisdom when it comes to leaders. The world is bad at leaders. Bad. There are Christian leaders even of corporations, of governments, and of armies who should not be leading churches. 
Proven leadership in the world does not qualify a man to shepherd God's sheep. This does. This text. God is looking at the heart. We should do all we can to look that deep. We will not do it perfectly. God will see much clearer than us. But we can try, and by assessing a man's character, we will get as close as we can to his heart. There's one further qualification that's going to take up the rest of our time. It's the answer to that second question I mentioned for this section. It's going to be our final point today. It's going to bring us right back to our main message. Look at verse 9 with me. This is kind of the heart of our text today. An elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Or as 1 Timothy says much more succinctly, he is able to teach. A pastor not only cares for God's people, but he cares for God's word. He stewards it. And he stewards it by using it in the ways God prescribes, not in the ways he thinks are wise. He doesn't bend the knee to pragmatic approaches to ministry at the cost of faithfulness to the word because he sees it working over here. He has both a fierce private and a fierce public loyalty to the Bible. Let's look at the private first. An elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Uh, To hold firm, I think we know what that means. To cling to something, to never let it go. Brothers, let's cultivate that. Cultivate a joyful and an unwavering submission to God's word. And we talked about this earlier. Pastors are to be men of God. They are Bible men at home and in the world and not just for intellectual pursuit. Brothers, look for ways to increase your intake of the word. Never waver on your doctrine of scripture. Nothing could be more dangerous to the church than an elder who is waffling on inerrancy or on sufficiency. But this loyalty to the word is also public. And we'll spend a little bit more time here. Here it has both an offensive and a defensive dimension. Elders play on both sides of the ball. If you want a football analogy, quarterbacks and linebackers. And really all Christians do too. Again, elders are just modeling this for all Christians. We're like baseball Shohei Otani, right? We're striking out heretics. We're hitting home runs of encouragement. Offensively, an elder uses the word to build up the health of the church. He can encourage others by sound doctrine, as the text says. If a man is to become a pastor, he must be able to encourage, to teach, and to apply God's word in a way that builds up the health of the church. An elder must be able to open his Bible, explain a passage, and apply it to someone's life. An elder doesn't have to preach. I mean, there there could be nine elders of your church. It's going to be hard to get them all up there to preach. I mean, maybe once in a while, but most of them aren't going to preach that much. They must be able to communicate, though, God's word to his people in an edifying way. Be it one-on-one, be it in a Bible study, be it at a hospital bedside to their children. Defensively, an elder must be able to use the word to expose the error of the church's enemies. He refutes those who oppose sound doctrine. And fundamentally, this means being very un-Canadian. 
actually saying that people are wrong when they are wrong, and then explaining from the Bible why it is that they are wrong. Paul is not saying here, though, that elders should be known as disagreeable and opinionated. That is not the point. In fact, I would emphasize for you a 1 Timothy 3 characteristic here. An elder is not quarrelsome. But he must be able to recognize doctrine that is off. Doctrine like is being presented by the false teachers in Crete, adding Jewish purity laws to the gospel. Anyone who is calling the truth false or encouraging the saints to break God's commands deserves to be exposed, often gently, often with much carefulness and approach because we don't know motives, initial motives, but also firmly, firmly. So in summary, who is an elder and what does he do? An elder models genuine good works that emerge from a deepening grasp of sound gospel doctrine. He loves the gospel, which is the ultimate good. He serves to preserve sound doctrine and model the godly living that flows from it. So what should we now do, given that being the case? Let me suggest three kind of rambling categories of actions for us as members of New City. The first one should be obvious is pray. This is an area we absolutely must commit ourselves to praying about. Uh, I implore you to pray for John and myself regularly, for the current elders of this church, uh, but also uh, for the elders that are still to come, that are being raised up in this church. Make it a regular part of your routine, as regular as praying for your spouse. Like, just a, a step outside of that, essentially. Join us Thursday nights. We do it there. Acts 20, Paul tells the Ephesian elders... Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Ultimately, it is the Spirit that qualifies men for ministry and the Spirit who keeps them qualified. So we need to ask him. Secondly, we should be asking ourselves, what am I doing to help raise up the next generation of elders? Well, as a church... We can get behind initiatives that push us in this direction. And one day, I would love for this church to be able to support pastoral interns, something to that effect, something to that nature. In 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul tells Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As elders, we try to keep this on the front burner. John and I, a part of every elders meeting is set aside for discussing future elders, and we're often meeting with men toward this end. Elders are a blessing to the church. Raising up pastors is good for every Christian. That's why we do this. More pastors is only good for every man and for every woman, young and old. We simply cannot offload this burden on seminaries, which is what North American culture has done recently. Seminaries are an enormous blessing to the church. John is a product of a seminary. But they are not the church. They will not be here, potentially. And certainly in some areas of the world, they are not. The local church is the God-ordained center of discipling that will persist at the end of the age. Seminaries are a great blessing while we have them. There are really generally two kinds of churches. Mark Dever likes to describe this all the time. He, he uses this little phrase, green dots and red dots. 
Green dots are churches that, by the grace of God, are net exporters of qualified leaders. More pastors are being produced than they have pulpits. The church is supplying its own leadership and sending men out to other churches. Red dots are net importers. Sometimes these churches are just really small. They need help. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but there are churches that consistently just need pastors to come in uh, from the outside. Every church member plays a role in creating a green dot environment, not just pastors. Brothers, I'm going to speak to members of our congregation here in sort of separate groups. Brothers, pursue growth in godly character. Take this on yourself. Study the Bible, read theology, come to prayer meeting where you can, be good husbands, good fathers, learn about what that is from the word, avail yourself of mentorship, of good teaching. And then pastor aspiration or gifting or not, this will be for your good. Sisters, don't underestimate your own godly character as an encouragement and a rebuke to the brothers of this church. We are blessed with godly sisters here at New City. Brothers, we do well to look at them. Married sisters, pray for your husband to this end. Even if the thought scares you of him taking church leadership on, make it easy for him to manage his household well. Mothers of young boys, do you know how many pastors owe their conversion and the majority of their spiritual formation to their moms? I dare say it is the majority. Parents, do we speak highly of pursuing church leadership, even pursuing it as a vocation in our homes? We should. Lastly, we all need to tighten our grasp on the gospel, on sound doctrine. We're going to see this again and again in Titus, but this is an action for us to do. Every member of this church will be part of evaluating the next man who is a candidate for the office of elder at New City. All of us. We all need to be able to discern whether his teaching is sound and his life reflects the gospel. It is dangerous to your own soul to assume someone else will handle that responsibility. Elders are serving for your eternal welfare. John could drop dead tomorrow. So could I. Could this congregation handle the responsibility of recognizing new leaders? I pray it could. But let's all continue to grow in the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that we can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Amen.